Our scripture reading this morning comes to us from the letter of James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. The letter of James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. Our passage this morning addresses two of the most challenging questions in the Christian life and two questions that run throughout the entire Bible and especially the New Testament. The first question is this, if we are all saved, by faith in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what defines saving faith? What makes faith real rather than fake? And the second question is this, since we know that we are saved by faith and that we cannot earn righteousness with God through works, What role do works play? Where do they fit in? If we aren't saved by works, why does the Bible constantly exhort us to pursue them? If you've been with us over the past several weeks, as we've walked through the epistle of James, you know that James has already brought this up. In chapter 1, verse 17, James tells us, This, 
Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So God has brought forth every good and perfect gift, our salvation among them. It is all from God and it is brought forth by God by faith. But then later in chapter 1, verse 22, he says this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. And then he tacks on this little phrase, deceiving yourselves. And self-deceit is a theme that comes up again later on in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 26, James says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue. So he's bringing up this idea, right? This concept that there are people in James's congregation, the people to whom he's writing, who might believe that they're Christians, but they aren't. If anyone thinks he is religious, don't deceive yourself. So what he's trying to show us is what is real faith, genuine faith, saving faith, and how does it compare to dead faith, phony faith, self-deceiving faith. James is trying to show us that what some people label faith isn't really faith at all. And in so doing, he shows us exactly where works fit in the Christian life. Not as the means by which we earn righteousness with God, but as the demonstration that our faith is real. Now we start with James showing us how to recognize dead faith. The first heading, and uh, I think in your notes, is dead faith revealed. And he starts in verse 14 with this. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, quote-unquote, save him? Now this sentence is absolutely critical to understanding this entire passage because understanding what James means when he says faith in this passage makes the difference between understanding what he's really trying to tell us and thinking that James is contradicting the gospel. What does James say about this faith? Well, first, he makes clear to us that the faith that he's talking about is not real, saving faith. Look at his words. He says, if someone says they have faith. Now, I think we all understand what we mean when we say that, right? Like when my wife Eileen says to me, you said you were going to take out the trash last night. 
What is the obvious implication? I think we all know. It's that I didn't take out the trash last night. Not that that's ever come up in our marriage. Just want to make that clear. So when James is saying someone says he has faith, what he really means, I think we can all agree, is that they don't actually have faith. But they say they do. And that this faith has no works associated with it. Now let's talk about that word that James uses for works for a second. That word is not a word that is referring to specific religious observances, right? This is not some religious word or or a word that is specific to doing churchy things. This is a word that is very general. This is a word that covers everything you do, everything you say, how you live. This is a very general, broad term. So we might paraphrase what James is saying here is something like this. He's saying, if someone says that they have faith, but nothing about the way they live their life reflects that faith, is that faith real? Now, we've all said it, right? This is very common. This is something you don't even have to understand the Bible to get. We all say, talk is cheap. right? We all know that. And James then moves on in verses 15 to 16 to give us exactly that example, the example of cheap talk, right? In chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So let's set the scene here. Let's see what James is actually trying to give us as this example. You're here at church next week, and you see me, and you see someone who's a member of our congregation, right? See what James says, brother or sister. This is not some random stranger. This is a member of our body come up to me, and it's quite clear that they are in need Now, the language that James is using here is not some one-off situation. This means someone who is in real, meaningful, material need of food or clothing. Someone who lacks the necessities of life. And they come up to me. Now, casual glance at me will probably tell you that I'm pretty well fed. Okay, I'm doing okay on food and shelter. And they say to me, Aaron, I need help. Can you help me? And I say to him, I say to that person, absolutely. I love to help the needy. I'll be praying for you. And then I turn around and I walk away. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for people who are in need. I just want to be very clear to say that. But if you saw me in that situation, look at someone who clearly needed food and clothing, And it was quite obvious that I had the material means to help them, and my only response to them, a member of our church, was to say, I'll be praying for you. How much do you think, how much would you think I actually care about them? How much would you think that I really mean it when I say that I care 
about those who are in need. I don't think you would, right? You wouldn't think that I really cared that much. And so that's what James is telling us here in verse 17 when he says that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's not talking about real saving faith. He's talking about faith, quote-unquote, as he's defined it in verse 14. Empty talk with no commitment and no action. And then he gives us another example, an even more profound example, doesn't he, in verse 19. He brings up demons. He says, look, you believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So merely believing certain facts about God is not the same as saving faith in God. Do you see his point? Demons know the facts about who God is. In fact, Jesus, during his earthly ministry in the Gospels, met demons, right? The Gospel writers show us, in fact, the the Gospel writers try to show us that demons recognized Jesus for who he was before his own disciples did. They cry out to him, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They know exactly who Jesus is, but that intellectual knowledge is not saving them. Satan has more accurate factual theology. He probably understands the factual nature of who God is better than any of us. And it does him absolutely no good because for all that he knows about God, he hates him. He is opposed to him. He does not love him. And so the point that James is making to us is merely knowing who God is, merely assenting to certain facts about God is not saving faith. Demons can get that far. It sounds kind of obvious and almost a little dumb to say it this way, but you cannot go to heaven doing something that a demon can do. In fact, he's probably, James is probably, since he's speaking to mostly a Jewish audience, giving them a callback to the Old Testament when he says, you believe that God is one. God is one is most likely a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where Moses says to the people of Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a famous Jewish prayer called the Shema. A demon can say those words and believe them. But what a demon can't do is what comes right after in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, where he says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That is beyond the power of a demon. They can believe certain facts about God, but they cannot love God. They cannot trust God. They cannot belong to God. So if merely believing certain facts or ideas about God is not saving faith, what is? What is? Now, James helps us to understand 
works and where works fit in the Christian life. In verses 18 and 19, he gives us the key. Listen to what he says in verse 19. I will show you my faith by my works. Do you see his point? He's saying that saving faith, genuine faith, real faith, and works are linked together. And they're linked together by something that we all know, even without looking at the Bible. What we do, how we live, what we value, reveals what we truly believe and what we truly love. Calvin, the famous reformer, said it like this, faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. So the critical thing that James is telling us in verse 19 is that when he says works, what he does not mean is doing good deeds in the hope that we can earn God's favor. We all know, right, that that is not the gospel of Jesus. But for James, works are the things that we do or the way that we live that demonstrates that we genuinely believe in Jesus, not just as Savior, but as Lord. And you can tell that James does not think that we can earn righteousness. And here's why I say that. In chapter 2, earlier on, verse 10, he says the following, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And then later in chapter 3, verse 2, he says this, We all stumble in many ways. So James is not saying you can earn your salvation by following the law. He's already said if you break one piece of the law, you might as well have broken all of it, and we all do. But what he is telling us is that genuine faith is demonstrated. It's vindicated. It's shown to be real by good works. And in so doing, he gives us two very important examples from the Old Testament. The first is Abraham. Now, if you grew up in church or you've been with us over the past couple of years as we've done a series in Genesis, you know the story of Abraham. Abraham could potentially be called the hero of the Old Testament. Abraham is a wealthy man. He's a powerful man. He's a successful man. But he has one major problem. He has no heir. He has no son. And so one night in Genesis chapter 15, he's confessing to God and saying, God, I want an heir. I haven't got one. And God says to him, go out and look at the stars and try to count them. That's how many offspring you'll have. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which James quotes, it says this, and James, or, <laughs> and Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. So Abraham is our great hero of faith. He is the great man of faith in the Old Testament. But James reminds us of the second part of that story. 
In Genesis chapter 22, many years later, God has indeed delivered on his promise to Abraham. And Abraham has had a son, Isaac. And at that time, God tells Abraham, I want you to take Isaac to this particular mountain, and I want you to put him on an altar, and I want you to sacrifice him. And sure enough, Abraham takes his son to that mountain, puts him on that altar, and raises up a knife to sacrifice him before an angel of God says, stop. You don't need to sacrifice him. What is James telling us? He's telling us that Abraham, in a very profound, gut-wrenching way, lived out his faith in God. His faith, when he believed God, was real. So he was justified in God's sight in the sense that God declared him righteous that night, all those years ago, when he believed God. But when James uses the word justified here, he means something more like he was vindicated. He was demonstrated to have real faith by what he did. He really trusted God. He really loved God. And he did something that was not empty talk. He did something that no demon could do. He walked his talk. Now, in some sense, James's other example could not be more different. Abraham was a man. He was rich. He was respectable. He was the head of a clan. Rahab was a woman. She was a pagan. She was a non-Jew. She was poor. She was a prostitute. In the eyes of James's readers, in the eyes of a first-century Jew... Rahab is about as far down the societal totem pole as you could possibly get. And yet, Rahab is another hero of faith lived out. The story of Rahab comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 2. Several hundred years after the death of Abraham, God's promises to Abraham have come true. There's now an entire nation that's come from Abraham's family, the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel has been told by God to go into this land that God has given them and to destroy the pagans who are living there. Rahab lives in the first city slated for conquest, the city of Jericho. And when the Israelites come in, their leader at that time, Joshua, sends a couple of spies into the city to have a look around and scope things out. And Rahab, who is one of the pagan Canaanites who lives there, hides these two men from the city authorities and risks her life to keep them safe. I think we can all guess what would have happened if she had been caught with two foreign spies in her home. And when they talk to her, What she says to them about why she did it is critical. These are her words. She says, The Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. 
So Rahab tells them, hey, look, I've heard about Israel, and more importantly, I've heard about your God, and I've decided that he is God, and that's why I have chosen to protect you. So just like Abraham, Rahab didn't merely believe certain things about God intellectually. She acted on those beliefs at great personal risk. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told very explicitly what it was that motivated Abraham and Rahab to do the things they did, to produce these good works. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19, it says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, and which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith. And in Hebrews 11.31 it says this, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So both Abraham and Rahab acted. They worked, but they worked by faith. This is not an idea that is unique to James. This is an idea that runs through the entire New Testament. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 is very famous, but but verse 10 is very important as well. Paul says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Or listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. But Jesus also says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Jesus also says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So this is not an idea that is unique to James. It runs throughout the whole Bible. But James is showing us how these two ideas fit together. What does it mean for us to do good works by faith? How can we distinguish that from trying to earn God's favor? As Pastor Z said to us a few weeks ago, wonderful thing, he said, Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. So how do we know when we're making grace-filled effort versus trying to earn? Now, I think the best description I've ever heard of this comes from an American pastor named John Piper. It's a famous example uh, that he's given over many years that I'm shamelessly stealing but acknowledging this morning. He tells a story that goes like this. Let's suppose that I go and purchase for my wife, Eileen, two dozen long-stemmed roses. 
And I go home. I ring the doorbell. And Eileen answers the door. And she looks at me, kind of funny, because why am I ringing the doorbell at my own house? But then she sees the flowers and she says, Aaron, these are such beautiful flowers. Why did you do it? What's the occasion? And I say to her, well, as you know, I'm your husband. It's my duty to do things for you like buying flowers. So I bought these because I want to make sure that you understand that I am a good husband and that I am doing a good thing in buying you these flowers. Now, I think you'd probably all agree with me that that is not the kind of response that's going to elicit a very positive reaction from my wife. And actually, as any man who's tried to earn his way out of trouble by buying flowers can tell you, not that that's me, it never works. Right? It does not work. But let's go back a minute, and let's, let's go back to where Eileen says, why did you do it? Why did you bring me these flowers? And instead of saying that, I say this. I say, I bought you those flowers because I was walking by the flower shop and I was thinking about how much I adore you and how you're my partner in life and how much I love you and I just couldn't help but buy some flowers and bring them home. That's what working by faith, working by love, looks like. This is not mere head knowledge. This is heart knowledge. Once the idea really hits us, it really cuts into us that the God of the universe, the God who made the heavens and the earth, loves us despite all of the ways that we turn our back on him and violate his law When that reality hits us, we cannot help but turn to this God in a faith that is not merely in our heads, but it's in our hearts. A faith that is living. A faith that inevitably shows itself in our lives. When we turn from our sin and we follow Jesus, what James is saying is that everything changes our thoughts, our words, our deeds, we realize one of the most glorious truths in the universe, and that is this. What God wants me to do and the things that are the best, most satisfying, glorious things for me to be doing are one and the same. When I turn and I follow Jesus in faith and in love, I'm not pursuing good works. I am not trying to follow Jesus with my cross because I'm trying to earn his love. I am trying to follow him because he has loved me and I love him. I'm not trying to produce good works to earn God's favor. I'm trying to produce good works because I want to live. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones a great preacher in the UK in the 20th century, explained this relationship like this. He said this, The Christian life is one, and it is indivisible. It consists of faith and works, belief and practice, and the two things 
are quite inseparable. They must never be divided. We must never attempt to divide them intellectually and in thought. Still less must we attempt to divide them in practice. In other words, the whole of the Christian life is the result of what we believe. There is nothing which I know of which is more unscriptural and which is more dangerous to the soul than to divide doctrine from life. Now maybe you're hearing these words of James and you're not yet a Christian. Maybe you're asking yourself, what does this mean for me? Perhaps you've thought about some of the claims of Christianity, about the nature of God, the nature of the universe, the nature of morality, and these claims seem reasonable. They seem plausible. Maybe you're even persuaded that Jesus really is God's son, and you're asking yourself, I think I might be ready to put my faith in Jesus. How can I know when I've done so? How do I do it? Do I have to immediately change my whole life before I can follow Jesus? And the answer is no, you don't. Jesus comes to you just as he comes to all of us, just as we are. And he says, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. I have come to call sinners Thinking you need to clean your life up before you come to Jesus in faith is like thinking you need to clean all the dirt off of yourself before you take a bath. And if that's you, and if you want to talk to someone about what it means to turn and put your faith in Jesus, we would love to talk to you about that. Please reach out to me or to Pastor Z or to another member of our church and we would be happy to talk with you and to pray with you, and to support you. Now maybe you're hearing these words, and you've been in church for some time. Maybe you've been in church your entire life. Maybe you prayed a prayer a long time ago that someone told you meant that you were a Christian. Or perhaps you've gone to church faithfully your entire life and figured that that meant that you followed Jesus. But as you examine your life, as you examine your priorities, what you value, how you think, how you talk, how you act, you start to wonder, do I really belong to Jesus? Am I truly part of his kingdom? Or do those tragic, terrible words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23 apply to me? For Jesus says this, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If that's you, if reflecting on your life makes you worry that your faith 
might just be head knowledge, might just be an idea. The first thing I want to say to you is this. The mere fact that you're concerned about this is a very good sign. We are told by Scripture to examine ourselves, yes, to ensure that our faith is real, but never forget that the object of our faith, King Jesus, is what saves us, not the strength of our faith. Second, if you feel this way, the best thing that you can do is not to sit and dissect your entire past, trying to convince yourself one way or the other. The best thing you can do is turn to Jesus right now and say, Jesus, whatever my life may or may not have been up until this point, I do want you as my Savior and I want you as my Lord. I turn to you in faith for the forgiveness of my sins and I ask that you give me the grace to show that faith today and every day by what I do in my life. If you're in this situation and you'd like to speak to someone, we also would like to speak to you. We'd like to support you. We'd like to pray with you. As we bring our time together this morning to a close, I want to encourage you. Remember, every good and perfect gift is from above. The faith in which we believe, the works that we produce by that faith in love, And the ultimate salvation we receive, all of it comes from God, our Father. So as we go forth, let us live, let us love, let us act as those whose faith is living, whose faith is real, whose faith works. You pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you look upon every one of us sinners that we are and you say, come to me and I will give you rest. We thank you, Lord, that we are not saved by our efforts. We thank you that you give us every good thing that we have and we ask, Lord, that according to your great mercy, that you would in us produce faith that is living and active and that rejoices in you and rejoices in serving you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.